And last week we heard from Genesis 10 and the table of nations. I know for some of you guys, it's not necessarily your most favorite of passages, but if you're a history nerd like me, you would absolutely froth it. And um, I, I did enjoy it. I spent a decent amount of time trying to work out how I fit into the table of nations. And so I ended up on this guy named Goma, who's the son of Japheth. And uh, he was actually uh, the father of the Germanic people. So, you know, the English and the French, the Scandinavian. Anyway, it's probably not a strong start to my sermon getting into Genesis 10, um, but we're going to move on. So uh, the point I want to make from Genesis 10 is this. Uh, there are three great families, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, three really important guys. And there are distinctions made between all human beings, but the four distinctions we see from that book are clans, languages, lands, and nations. What we don't see a distinction in is race. There's no distinction in race because we are all the same race. We are distinguished between our cultural heritage, which language we speak, which nation we come from. Those are the things that create distinctions between peoples, but race is something that's foreign from the Bible. And what we, what we find here in Genesis 11 is where these distinctions came uh, basically birthed, where they came into existence. And so we're going to be reading Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Moses sets this scene for us. They've all got the same language. They've all got the same words. And we see that this human community was relatively small, but it wasn't divided. They were all one. Everyone had the same language, the same clan, the same nation, the same land. And you may think, wow, this sounds like a utopia. There's no divisions. There's no war. There's no uh, hardship that's going on. No countries fighting each other. Uh, but we shouldn't be so certain. Because if you didn't pay attention to last week, you wouldn't have remembered this guy named Nimrod. He, he was a funny guy. He was considered a mighty man, a mighty hunter. This guy was the real deal, a warrior, a strong man, and a king, King Nimrod. And he was the powerful ruler over this community, the tyrannical ruler Nimrod, and he called the shots. And this is where his kingdom started. Look at Genesis 10.10. The beginning of his, his being Nimrod's, kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh. 
Where? In the land of Shinar. Oh, the same place we're talking about right now. He started Babel. He was the king of Babel. The king of all the lands of Shinar and Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. This is the birthplace of civilization. It doesn't matter what viewpoint you have about the history and uh, the formation of the human race. What we know is that Mesopotamia was the birthplace of all civilization. We know that for a fact. And here it was. This is that civilization. And whoever Nimrod was, he was a warrior and he was a king. And you can't be a warrior without first proving yourself in battle. He was proved at the end of a sword. This man was brutal. And these early times were not marked by utopia. Don't think you want to go back to these times. They're not marked by peace, but the brutal reality of life in a fallen world. Nimrod has subjugated the entire world. Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Hitler, none of these guys could subjugate the entire world, but this guy, Nimrod, he had a bit of an advantage. Everyone was kind of settled in one place, but he conquered everyone. He was king of humanity. And what did God commanded humanity to do? We remember uh, Genesis 9, 1, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We know this. This is what they're supposed to be doing. And what do they do instead? They move together to the east, down to the land of Shinar, and decide they're going to build a city. They hatch a plan. They don't want to give up their power and allow people to slip away from under their control. So they say, verse 3, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And this is the first of three sentences that will begin with come, let us. And these are invitations that indicate strategy. You're strategizing over something. You're saying along, you know, come, listen, let's do something. We're going to go do something. We have a plan here. There's a strategy. It's not a simple, oh, this might be a good idea. No, this is plotting. This is a conspiracy. They're scheming. They're planning. And here we have bricks. And bricks are a symbol of permanency. And we all know this from our youth, don't we, when... Someone, our parents maybe came along and told you the story of the three little pigs. You got one pig, builds his house out of the straw, doesn't really work well when the big bad wolf shows up, does it? He blows the house down, the pig has to scuttle over to the pig that built a house out of sticks. Same thing happens to him, but when you get to the brick house, no matter how many times that wolf huffs and puffs, he can't blow that house down because bricks are strong. My house is built out of bricks Thousands and thousands of years later, bricks are something uh, that are worthwhile to build something out of. And so bricks are permanency, strength, durability, endurance. They're not building something that would just be useful for them, but something that would outlast them and build their legacy. A building that would stand for centuries. They want their city to last. They want their city to outlive them. And I can understand that. We often look at our cities and imagine that they'll go on forever. I don't look at the city of Sydney and think it's on a timer. I think that that city's just going to keep going on and on and on and on. But across all history, we know that most cities have a timer. Most cities will be destroyed. It feels strange to imagine that one day Sydney's just not going to be there. A lot of people called Rome the eternal city. Go hop in a plane and go there. You'll see the ruins of that city today. The kingdom of Nimrod was to build a legacy in a city that would last. And okay, fair enough. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with building a building that you want to outlast you. Nothing wrong with building a city. But what happens next? Verse 4. Then they said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, now we've got a problem. They want a tower with its top in the heavens, and they want a name. And we're all pretty impressed with tall things, aren't we? It's a show of power, ingenuity, wealth. It makes you a name. People travel all, travel all the way around the world just to see the skyscrapers of New York. And you know, you know, you know that city in New York, the greatest city in the world, you hear it all the time. Uh, I've always wanted to go there and see those skyscrapers. But, you know, people buy tickets to go to Buckingham Palace. They go to see Big Ben. And I went there and I'm like, ah, is this it? It's like this tiny little tower. I was expecting something much bigger deal. But it's not just buildings. We're impressed with anything tall. Some people will go all the way to California to see the redwood trees, the biggest trees in the world. We love anything that is tall. Some people are stunned when they go and see these huge waves in the city of Nazar, Portugal, that some of them can get up to 24 meters tall. These beasts are insane. Look, if you remember this, look up uh, Nazar waves. I mean, I'm particularly interested in this, but it's insane to see the size of these waves. We're impressed by tall things. Very impressed by tall things. But have you noticed that there's never a tall building that doesn't have a name? No one ever goes to all the trouble of building a tall building and then doesn't give it a name. We've got to give it a name. We don't give names to unimportant buildings. My house does not have a name. I mean, as far as the name is concerned, it's just Cody's house. I didn't give my house a name. Most of you guys don't. I imagine your houses don't have names. But if you build something big, you want to give it a flashy name. You want to name it after a person. You want to name it after, uh, you know, you might want to say the Empire State Building. Like that name just sounds, I don't know what it is about it, but that sounds like a big, impressive building. And you might be tempted to think that God is against big buildings. You can't build it too big. You've got a a limit. We'll say like 20 meters or something like that. But you can't build it any bigger than that. God doesn't like big buildings. No, that's not what's going on here. God isn't anti-architecture. This passage, it's not talking about building a big city. It's not even talking about a skyscraper. The problem is human pride. Because what goes on here? They say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Interesting. God had told them to multiply and fill the earth. They know this. You know how I know this? I know that they know this because they use the exact same language that God uses, right? When God told them to multiply and fill the earth, God wasn't telling them that this is a good thing to do, that this will lead to your blessing and that they had a choice. No, they didn't have a choice. This was a command from God. You must multiply. You must fill the earth. It's not a request. And Nimrod and all these little cronies decided, well, God, we're going to look you square in the face and say, no, we don't want to disperse. We don't want to go. We're not going anywhere. We like our power. We're the captain now. We get to decide what goes on. So how does this tower factor in? Where does does this tower show up? Well, look very closely in how it's phrased. It says a tower with its top in the heavens. Is this just a really tall building or is something else going on here? All across ancient civilizations, ancient cultic religions had something in common. That was what was referred to, like if you're an anthropologist, you would call it a ziggurat. Most of you would be like, I have no idea what that is. Pyramid is a better way to describe it. 
And on top of these pyramids, you can think of the great Mayan civilizations or Machu Picchu, or you can think of the pyramids of Egypt, but all of these massive scale buildings made out of stone and made out of brick, dedicated to the gods, or in the case of the great pyramids of Egypt, to a pharaoh. They were dedicated to something other than God. And this tower would give them access to the heavens. And any ancient Israelite would know exactly what's going on here. It's an altar. Many ancient civilizations would build these pyramids and they would sacrifice on altars right at the very top of these things. And in the case of the Mayan civilization, the blood would run down the steps all the way to the bottom. And it was the sign of the deity up in the heavens, blessing the earth below as the blood runs down. And so they build a city, not named for God, but named for themselves. And they build a temple, but it's not for the worship of God. It's for the worship of something else. We don't know if they're setting up a different religion. We don't know if they're setting up a temple to worship themselves. But they wanted something they could reach into the heavens without having to go through God. They wanted access to the heavens that didn't involve God. And they did this as a refusal to obey God's purposes. God told them to spread out. They said no. They don't want to give up their power by letting people get away. This is actually a common theme throughout Scripture. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh will not let them go. He will not give up his power over them, and he is willing to endure plague after plague after plague and keep these Israelites within his grasp. We have modern examples of this today. All you have to think about is Germany post-World War II when the city was, uh, Berlin was divided into two sections, east and west, And east was the Soviet communist side and west was the allied, mainly US-controlled section. You can guess which side you could cross into. You could cross into the the east side whenever you wanted to. If you wanted to go and become a communist, you could go, but you couldn't leave. It's like Hotel California, you know? You, You can go stay, but you can never leave. People don't want to give up control. Tyrants never want to give up control. And man was made to be free. Man was made to disperse and enjoy the earth. And these people were told to disperse by God. The leaders sat down together and Nimrod, their king, and they said, no, we will not disperse. We're going to take the place of God. We're going to control the future. And it's this concept that we know of as autonomy. If you hear that word autonomy, and you're kind of like a very modern thinker, and you exist within this kind of modern paradigm, you hear the word autonomy, and you immediately think, ah, yes, good thing. Autonomy. We want that. We want autonomy. We want independence, self-expression, personal choice. Especially if you're American. If you're American, you'll just be all about that stuff. They were going to get it through a new religion and a new city. And there's anything that people want today, it's autonomy. They want the right to decide for themselves what happens. They want to define for themselves what is true. They want the right to define their own identity. They want the right to even define their own gender or their own sexuality or their own self-expression. But notice this, Scripture completely rejects this idea. Scripture completely rejects this idea. You don't get to define reality. You don't even get to define how you're supposed to live, what's a moral way of living. We don't get to redefine God's commands and decide, actually, this thing is now moral and this thing is now immoral. 
That is not something that is given to human beings to have. So how does God react to the Tower of Babel? He says in verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And you see this beautiful anthropomorphic language. We've been talking about that phrase, uh, describing how God sees what they're doing. He comes down and he reacts to it. And this is how he reacts to it. He says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, the quest for autonomy is a fool's errand. You will never get autonomy. I'll tell you why you won't get autonomy. Because it's based on the assumption that God will do nothing. It's based on the assumption that God will see and stay in heaven, that he won't come down. But Nimrod has made a bad choice because God did come down and God did see and God was going to do something. He thinks he can disobey God and ultimately get away with it. And this isn't the first time that human nations have thought they can turn their back on God and get away with it. But eventually it catches up with them. God doesn't stop them before they begin the tower. He stops them mid-construction, right? God eventually acts. And it says here in the language that they're the children of man. Translated literally, sons of Adam. Sons of Adamah. And if you remember from Genesis uh, 2, Adam means dirt. Adam means dirt. And so who are these people? The children of men. The offspring of Adam. And the text is subtly reminding you who, you, who they are. The children of dirt. They're the children of dirt, rummaging around in the dirt, making some bricks with the dirt, building a tower of dirt. Complete, useless empire of dirt. And they have the audacity, these dirt-dwelling people, building cities of dirt, to stick their noses up at God. And God says here that nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. If God doesn't act, this cycle of sin and claims of autonomy will never go unchecked. If God doesn't intervene, humanity just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and what they want to do will eventually come into existence. They're going to build a tower. They're going to set up alternative religions, and they're going to refuse to spread out and obey God. But God is having none of it. Verse 7, the third come let us. Except this time it's God speaking. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Notice that there were three plans that were hatched. Two, come let us. Come let us build bricks. Come let us build this city. And the third, come let us. Well, only one of those plans succeeded. Only one of those plans ended up fulfilling its goal. And God muddles up their languages. I mean, imagine trying to set up a kingdom. Imagine trying to set up literally anything, not being able to communicate with someone, not being able to talk to them. Imagine what would happen to your workplace if all of a sudden everyone couldn't understand each other. They all spoke different languages. It'd be pandemonium. It'd be a complete breakdown of communication such that any attempts to maintain any order would just be futile. There'd be nothing you can do. Anyone who's in leadership knows that communication is everything. Without strong lines of communication, nothing can succeed. 
And just like that, all of Nimrod's officials, all of his underlings, all of his thugs and goons and all the people that he ordered around and all the oppression and control that he exerted over everyone evaporated in a second. How about you? Do you realize that your control, that your tyranny can evaporate in a second in the same way? God can take it away from you. God is not restrained. He didn't look down and go, they've got the same language, what can I do? He's like, you know what? I'm just going to invent thousands of languages and throw them at them. And now they speak thousands of languages. The basis of all of our languages starts at this moment. And everyone uh, was, uh, was speaking different languages and Nimrod's kingdom collapsed. It was it. God had won in a second. And all he did was change their language. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God had his way. The people were forced to disperse. Why? Well, remember you're in the ancient world right now. You might not be worried if all of us in this room all of a sudden couldn't understand each other, we all had different languages. You might not be worried that swords would start getting pulled out and people would start getting shanked. We wouldn't be worried about that straight away. But if you're in the ancient world, that's a real threat. And breakdown in communications is a serious issue. And so people decide to hightail it out of there. It's time to get out. Get your family, get everyone you can and go and find your own spot, find your own place. And this is where we get the word babble, the English word babble, you know, someone who speaks gibberish, nonsense. This is where we get it, from this story. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that this city, the city of Babel, becomes the city of Babylon. If you've read scripture, you'll know that the city of Babylon shows up all the time. It shows up, in fact... Uh, all throughout Scripture, even into the New Testament, when you read the book of Revelation, you find the city of Babylon showing up again. Babylon is just all throughout this now. What is going on? Why is Babylon suddenly this big thing? We get it from Genesis 11, and then it just permeates all of Scripture. Why? It comes to represent the city of man, the city of human beings, the city of tyranny, the city of oppression, the city of slavery. In the Bible, there's a second city. You'll know this city well if you've spent any time in church. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of God. And as opposed to the city of Babylon, Jerusalem is the city of freedom. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem is the city of prosperity. And it's the city where God is. In the book of Daniel, when the Babylonian Empire came and conquered Jerusalem in 587 B.C., one of the ways they sought to control their uh, subjects was to forcefully relocate them. And I was talking to youth about this on Friday, so if you're in youth, you're just going to hear this again. Sorry, guys. Uh, but imagine for a second that a foreign country came and conquered Australia. And I'll just pick a country completely random. We'll say it's China. And China comes and <laughs> conquers us. And then they go, hey, guys, jump on this boat. We're going to move you to Shanghai. We're going to move you to Wuhan. You might be like, please, no, not Wuhan. Not this again. And they say, we're going to rename you. We're going to give you the name Li Yang or Zhao Zhu. 
Do you think that that would change your view of yourself? You're no longer in Australia. You're in a completely different country and you've got a completely different name. That's what the Babylonians did to the Israelites. They were trying to strip away their identity. But not only that, they named them after their gods and they tried to force them to abandon the God of the Bible and to worship their gods. They wanted to strip them of all their identity. This was the city of Babylon. And it tried to force everyone into the same mold. It tried to force everyone to have the same language. Read the book of Daniel. It's as clear as day. They tried to have them say to, for them to have the same words, the same customs, the same culture, the same religion. Where do we see that? The Tower of Babel. Babylon never changed. Babylon is still the same. They sought to enslave people. And in the quest for autonomy, the Babylonian Empire, the Kingdom of Babylon, can only deliver slavery. They can only deliver sameness. They can only deliver pure oppression and forcing you to become like them. And so many people in our country, like, our country is the best example of this. We cry for autonomy, and yet you can't have a wrong opinion. We cry for the right to decide what we do with our lives, but you can't live your life the wrong way. And in this cry for autonomy and self-expression, we don't see autonomy, we see slavery. And we see sameness. You can't have a different opinion. You can't think something different. And if you think something different, you're going to lose your job. If you think something different, we're going to dox you. If you think something different, we're going to show up at your house and make your life a misery. That doesn't sound like autonomy to me. Sounds like Babylon. Sounds like slavery. Jesus teaches us something very different. Jesus doesn't tell you to take autonomy. He tells you to give it up to surrender it to the kingdom of God. Then he says you will find freedom, but first by giving it up. Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You've got to lose your life. You've got to give it up. And all of us here who are Christians and we were standing at that decision to follow Jesus or if you were growing up in a Christian home, that moment when you said, yes, Jesus is for me, but you realized that that moment you had to lose your life. You had to give it up to follow Jesus. The kingdom of Babylon represents our attempts to live without God and all we end up is alone and enslaved. It represents the arrogance, disobedience and rebellion of humanity, but there is another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom where we live in harmony with our God by giving up our delusional claims of autonomy, then we actually find freedom. Then we find freedom. John 8, 31, 32, Jesus says this, he says, uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You are either set free by the truth of Jesus or lost in the city of Babylon. There is no middle ground. There is no city in the middle like the city of Paris or something like that. There is no other city. You're one of the other. The city of God or the city of man. And if you are a Christian, you belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Paul says this, uh, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
do you see yourself as bought? Because you are bought with a price if you're a Christian. You're not bought with a price like slaves up on a chattel board getting auctioned. That's not how Jesus bought you. He bought you as a ransom. You were trapped. You were enslaved. You were oppressed. And you had a ransom price, your own life. Your death was the ransom. And Jesus swallowed it up for your freedom. Do you trust God when he says that following him will give you freedom? Do you trust God when he says that giving up your autonomy and your idea of yourself will give you freedom? Do you trust Jesus when he says that losing your life means you will gain it? And I remember when I was a young 19-year-old boy considering faith in Jesus and considering the enormity of the decision I was just about to make and how much that would change my life. And man, it changed my life. I had to give up so much. So much of the things that I wanted, so many of the things that I was grasping for, so many of the things that I thought would make me happy. And now, all these years later, would I do it again? Yes. A million times yes. Because since then, I have experienced real freedom in Jesus. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I just want to write this on the back of my eyelids sometimes. Because I'm just like, yep, give me that yoke back. I want that slavery back. I want that way of life back. We're like the Israelites in the desert. Like, oh man, in my old life, we had like onions and stuff. We have to eat this manna in the desert. I want those onions back. You were, you were miserable in Egypt. And we just forget so quickly that that yoke of slavery is just so uh, close to us. But Paul says, freedom is available in Christ. He has set you free. He has bought you with a price. Stand firm. Do not let anyone come along to you and, and submit you again to a yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone come along to you and tell you, no, dude, you need to live your life your way. You know, get some Bon Jovi coming on. It's my life. You know, that kind of stuff. No, that's not what's going on. Don't let Bon Jovi fool you. He's not going to lead you into freedom. He says he will, but he has no idea what he's talking about. I'm just going to leave you with this. There's this beautiful symbolic language in Revelation of the city of God, New Jerusalem. And we see New Jerusalem descending out of heaven like a wife adorned for her husband. And all the nations members of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language will bring all their glory and honor into the city. We know what the city of New Jerusalem is. It's the church because it's the bride of Christ. And all the nations are bringing all their glory and honor into this city as men and women give their lives to Jesus. And as they give their life to Jesus, they bring in with them their culture, their identity, their language, and God's kingdom is enriched. The church, although one entity, has many languages. It's the reversal of Babel. In Babel, they had one language. They were all sane. They were all oppressed. But in the city of God, we have all different languages. And the work of Jesus in our life is this regathering of mankind, bringing all things under his rule and reign, and it is the same work out in the world right now. And you may be thinking sorry for yourself because you look around at Curry or you look around at Brankston or you look around at Singleton and you go, 
I really want this kingdom thing to be going on in my city. Well, get your eyes off yourself. Do you know where the gospel is going forward? Africa. You know where it's going forward? Latin America, Southeast Asia, all these places that were so hostile to the gospel for so long, all of a sudden giving their lives to Jesus. Jesus is conquering the nations. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. But he's calling you right now to mission. And he's called you from the moment that you believed in him. We are called to be ambassadors for God in this great mission of gathering people from every nation and tongue. And you'll know what I said at the beginning of the talk when I mentioned kids that don't know anything about Christianity. We are an unreached people group now. We need people to be sending missionaries here. We need other countries to take interest in Australia and start sending their missionaries because we are desperately in need of help. And if we're not going to do it, the locals, the natives of this area, the people that grow up here, if we're not going to do it, well, then who is? Are we going to wait for Koreans to send Korean Christians over here? They are doing that in England right now. They're sending missionaries over to England. It's amazing. England used to be the chief sender of all missionaries all the way, all around the world. And now they are so unreached that Koreans are going over to reach them with the gospel. It's amazing. Jesus is calling you to be an ambassador for God in this great mission of regathering all the nations underneath his rule and reign into his city. Will you join him? Let's pray. Father, we see a story like the Tower of Babel and we read through it very quickly and we feel like we get a good understanding of what it means. But in the breadth of all of Scripture, Lord, you have woven this wonderful tapestry where we can just see so much in your word. And Lord, I want to repent personally for the times that I have read sections of your scripture and seen them as unimportant when all scripture is God-breathed. I thank you, Lord, that you were put in this church so many godly people, so many people that love you. Lord, would we just have a fire set underneath us that will give us the passion and urgency that the mission here requires? Lord, we don't realize how dark and desolate this area is. But would your spirit bring life and would your kingdom, the kingdom of God, descend from the heavens and touch this place and would people's lives be changed by Jesus? We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.